drop. Hi, everyone. You're listening to Storyfort Presents, Voices of Treefort Music Fest. This is a weekly podcast that dives into the stories behind Boise's Festival of Discovery. This is Allison Meyer from the Storyfort team. I'm going to keep this intro pretty short um, because my co-host Larry Rosen recorded a really great intro for uh, this particular episode of the podcast, which is another one that we're bringing to you from our archives. This is an interview we did with the writer Jay Ribbon Appleman, um, I believe in September, so quite some time ago now, a completely different reality. You might recognize Jay and his book, The Kill Jar, from past Storyford events. We talk a lot about the origin of that book and his history as a writer in this interview. And in the coming weeks, we will be bringing you some new interviews we've been recording remotely, and we're very excited to share all of those with you. But I will leave it at that for now. I hope you are all doing well, and we will talk to you soon. Storyfort presents Voices of Treefort Music Festival. I am your co-host Larry Rosen. With me today is Allison Meyer. Did I pronounce your name right? Yes. Oh, check me well out. Well done. Allison Meyer is with me today because, among other reasons, she is a fan of today's guest, J. Ruben Appleman, A-P-P-E-L-M-A-N, and his book, The Kill Jar, which was published in 2017 on Simon and Schuster. Uh, a little background on J. Reuben Appleman. Um, he started out as a poet, wrote two books of poems, one called Wood Smoke and one called Make Loveliness, which we don't really talk a lot about in we this interview, know. just a little bit. We talked a little bit beforehand. We did. Yeah, he is a two-time Idaho Literature Fellow. He used to host the Writer's Block, a, radio, uh, a weekly radio interview program. He's been a screenwriter, he's been a story editor, he is, and it's funny because I wrote down, he is a true crime expert. And <laughs> after you listen to the podcast, you'll understand the irony in that. Um, he has done a, just pretty much everything, he, he's everything you can imagine looking into as an artist yeah, uh, and, a, and a fan of the, spo- of the written word, he's done. Uh, but The Kill Jar is making quite a splash. And has inspired a documentary, Children of the Snow, uh, based like the book on the Oakland County child killings of 1976 and 77. The impact on Jay was profound, to say the least. So uh, enough of listening to us. We'll go ahead and get out of your way then and let you listen to Jay Rubin Appleman here on StoryForge Presents. <laughs> Definitely. My all 800 followers. <laughs> I'm sort of shocked by that. You're, you're not a big... I, I would like to... You only had 240-something uh, Twitter followers. Yeah, I just got on Twitter like... Okay. And all I... I just don't even... It's fun. I actually have a funny story about um, Twitter, which is that... Um, I got on Twitter in 2007 before, uh, when I got on Twitter, there were 12,000 Twitter users. That's it. And everybody was following everybody. And within a month, I had like 3,500 followers. And? And that was 13 years ago. Yeah. And you got off I, then. I, I, and all I was using Twitter for was to tweet these fictional lines from a story I was writing in my head about a love affair with Paris Hilton <laughs> that I was having. And so I would... <laughs> tweet things like Paris was hanging from the balcony and you know, some shit about Paris hanging from the balcony and me me having to lift her off the balcony and stuff. And, and then I like, after a couple of hundred tweets, I was like, what am I doing this for? And I just dumped it. Cause it's awesomeness. <clears throat> yeah. I didn't yeah. realize at the time that had I kept going. Right. I mean, I would have been one of those guys yeah. that had a million and a half Twitter followers from just dicking around. But you know, and I feel like, uh, by the way, the voice you are hearing is Jay Rubin Appleman our guest and I had some plans to start out with something a little more uh, 
formatted, but I kind of like this. this. So we're just going to go with this. This is awesome. Yeah. I think that's what Twitter was originally. That's the highest calling of Twitter in my mind. Just crazy stuff. Like who's the Rob Delaney built a whole career. Yeah. Just posting stuff on yeah. Twitter, his stuff in his head. Make art. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking today that I only want, I'm single now, and I only want to date somebody who's, who makes their living telling the truth. Oh, and boy. I thought, and I thought the only way, wow. well, I thought the only way to do that is to date an artist because everybody else has to lie as a, as a consequence of getting paid. And, and that, I think that's, <laughs> that's... why Twitter was like organically <laughs> designed for that to just say truthful things but I think instead it's lost of its way. Oh, it's totally. now it's just, uh, you know, it's, 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 um, de facto comedy, Political, not comedy central anger, comedy. What's, what's the, unintentional comedy what's beneath comedy central, uh, comedy. Farce. Yeah. Something like that. <laughs> farce. Everybody's trying to be fucking funny and, or mad or, well, I've definitely, can I, I can swear on. Yeah, you yes. can swear. Let's throw a pin yeah. on the truth telling thing because sure. I think that's going to be an yeah. important part of what we talk sure. about today. Sure. Um, let's start out. Uh, let's start out with your book. Now I know you had said we talked a little bit about how to introduce the topic of your book. Uh, I want you to to tell the listeners, you know, a little bit about what it's about. But I think you have a passage you're going to read that'll get us started in that direction. Yeah, yeah. In in the 1970s in in Detroit, out in the blue collar suburbs, right outside of Detroit, um, which most people would still consider Detroit because it's such a sprawling mass that um, if you're from anywhere near the epicenter, you consider yourself a Detroiter. Um, in the in the mid 70s, four children were uh, abducted and murdered over a 13 month period. Um, they were held in captivity they, diff, at different points so one then another then another then another and they were held in captivity for varying lengths um and uh you know horrible things were done to them in captivity and then they were eventually murdered and uh dumped out into the streets basically and around that time um somebody tried to abduct me uh i was seven years old and um somebody tried to get me in their car nothing happened i got away um, end of story. But as as an adult, uh, I started thinking about this case, which had been known as the Oakland County Child Killer case. And I, I realized that the case had never officially been solved, but I didn't know much about the progression of the case, what had happened. W was it listed as cold? Was it actively, you know, open and being pursued? I, I didn't know what I didn't know anything about anything related to this case other than four kids had been abducted it had sat and murdered the effects of that had sort of saturated myself and my community um, the psyche of, of of hundreds of thousands if not eventually millions of, of people um, in that area and um, it changed the way I, I viewed the world uh, permanently and 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 then um, uh, also uh, parallel to that was the attempt to, attempted abduction on me, which darkened my world as well. And I knew those things as a part of me um, psychologically. Uh, they affected how I act, acted in my adult life, how I raised my kids, how I looked at other people's families, how I a sort of protective thing clicked in with me. And I started um, noticing when people were vulnerable more often than than I had as a child, but as an adult, I could see vulnerability in other people a lot easier, I think, because of this experience. Um, and I felt uh, uh, with all of that, I had no recourse for any of it. I felt kind of powerless and um, and, and uh, against the sort of darker doings of the world. And and at some point, I, I decided, I just became compelled, I first decided and then became compelled to sort of look into this case and um, the more I looked into the case, uh, the more things seemed off, that this was a case that seemed like it should have been solved decades ago. And, and um, here I was at the same time raising my kids who were little, and I, I, I somehow I felt intuitively that in order to protect my kids, I had to be one of the, the sort of fighters of these types of evil, evils, even though that kind of darkness maybe wasn't infringing on my own house. Um, uh, there was some com compulsion to to close those doors that were sort of open, swinging open with fear or something. And um, 
I went back to the to Detroit several times over the period of many years and uh, researched this case, talked to family members of the victims, talked to cops, uh, walked the the walked the 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 beat of the the murder, so to speak, the abduction and drop off points. Um, and at some point got a hold of thousands of pages of documents related to the case, uh, city, state, county, FBI, investigative documents, and um, pieced together a narrative for this for this book that became The Kill Jar. And um, the book chronicles um, my dive into the case as well as the case itself and, and ultimately um, what I think makes a pretty clear, uh, paints a pretty clear picture of... Um, a couple of cult, culpable people instead of just what what people were looking for originally, which was a lone sort of serial killer type. Um, so that's what the book's about. Okay, uh, and I can read from it uh, as we were talking about. And you want to do that? And yeah, let's start with that. This is just from uh, the introduction. A murder scene is taped off to preserve evidence. Investigators will often return to it again and again, carefully walking through doorways, quietly standing in one corner and then another, maybe reflecting on blood stains at the center of a room. A stain might be body-shaped and large, or it might be the size of a coin, cylindrical and small, leading to another coin-sized shape across the room, and then to another near a wall and finally to another coin of blood that elongates now and seems to have pulled itself toward the front door, searching for exit. Evenings are the hardest times to sleep. An investigator's bedroom is painted with the stain of cases being worked. There might also be photographs of loved ones or tastefully placed artwork on the bedroom walls, but an investigator's mind is not calmed enough by this to fall tactfully into slumber. At night, beneath the sheets, a question repeats itself in the investigator's mind. How did one thing lead to another, which led to the end? Memoir, too, is a narrative that's oftentimes best understood utilizing the techniques of a criminal investigation. To begin, a scene from one's life is taped off on the written page, preserved, and thereafter investigated. Each relevant stain in the various rooms of a memoirist's experience is revealed under lighting sampled and studied until a pattern emerges. A true memoirist, restless in the evenings, snaps awake with anxiety, sometimes with dread, and eventually with awareness. How one thing led to another does indeed unfold in the darker hours before illumination. When I set out to examine an unsolved murder case, I did not yet know that my personal narrative, violent at times in its own right, even if only with longing, would collide with the narrative of the horrible crimes I'd be investigating. This story, then, became a story of the living and the dead alike. The dead and the walking are twins, after all, each the other's mirror. There's a few directions we can go <laughs> with this podcast, and, and I think a lot of them, in my mind as I'm listening to you, are going to be chicken or egg issues because I want to talk about how this book came together. I want to talk about the book's impact on you while you were writing it, before you were writing it, and now. And I want to talk about the true crime genre in general. And it seems like when we conceived this podcast, we were going to say, oh, let's talk to a true crime writer. But I'm not necessarily convinced that you are exclusively a true crime writer. Man, I never even read a true crime. <laughs> Listen, I'm, I'm going to be brutally honest. I uh, the only even remotely considerable considered uh, true crime book I read was In Cold Blood, which arguably is the the, the most famous and greatest. But um, I read that I got 20 years before I I started working on this book, and I had never read. Well, I read a book on Leavenworth Prison called Inside the Hot House. <laughs> And um, if I remember the title right, um, but that was just a book on a prison, you know, uh -huh. how the shenanigans that go on there and stuff. I had never read a true crime book and I am terrified of um, just instinctively uh, rebel against uh, what you see in horror movies and things like that. Um, there are there are TV shows that I that have been my favorite 
um, crime shows. I watched all all of them after writing the book. Um, Dexter, for one, I didn't you know uh, I didn't watch any of these things when they were live. I, I never had any cable or whatever. I, I watched this stuff. You know, I streamed it in the last few years. But like all of Dexter, all of the killing, all of the fall. But these are these are s- stories that are um, psychologically interesting. I, I I have never been into um, true crime uh, in quotes, and I tell you because it's horrific. The fact is, um, uh, you are dealing with horrible things that have happened to real people, and I don't I don't like that. You know, I don't like to envision real people getting uh, raped and murdered and uh, held in captivity and fucked up in you know, the millions of ways that, that crazies will do, do that. And, and so this, this is not my genre, man. (laughs) But you went into this knowing that you were going to have to face those images. Yeah. How hard. And and so, and what I've read is the, you know, when I've read things about the book and about you and about your approach to the book, the word obsession comes up. Yeah. This was your lifelong obsession. So in choosing to pursue this, to write this book that is gonna, you knew going in, you're gonna face stuff you don't wanna face, right? Yeah. How hard was that decision to make? Or was it even a decision? No, it wasn't a decision. What happened was um, a few years before, a few years before writing the, digging into this case, I worked, I got it lucky and I got a, I got a gig from uh, 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 a film about the child sex trade. Mm. Um, and I wouldn't say I got lucky in terms of dealing with that content, but um, it showed me a, a, a direction uh, of great interest to me, which were, um, well, here, here's what here's what happened. Let me back up and say um, there are there are cops who work in uh, uh, work at busting child pornographers or busting child predators of all sorts. And there's the longest line of cops waiting to get into that work and the quickest burnout rate, but but um so they don't last very long but it's among the most important things that you can fight um if not the most important thing that you can fight uh, it's certainly among them and um nobody makes a rational decision to go out and fight the greatest war you can fight so to speak it's 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 a compulsion it's an obsession it's a heart it's your heart leading you um, towards something that you just you know is right and will not settle within you until you do something or at least attempt to do something about it. Like in the case of if if you're a cop, and, you know, and you're trying to f- validate your life, do you want to give parking tickets or bust people for smoking weed, or do you want to go, um, you know, fight the real bad guys? Mm-hmm. And uh, in in after being exposed to this similar content working on this film it's called playground the child sex trade in america and um i spent five months uh engaged with um as a story editor engaged with um uh dvds of footage taken from the front lines so to speak uh experts on the experts on the um uh the topic interviews with experts on the topic or interviews with vice cops or thing interviews with with victims of the sex trade things like that uh just kind of immersing in that stuff for five months uh gave me a direction it was like suddenly um or it gave my heart a direction mm-hmm. i should say suddenly i didn't care about anything else except for um doing whatever i could to stop as much of it as i could so um this became my next project basically i did a film after that sex trade film um uh um following jens pulver ufc ufc fighter one-time world champ two-time world champion but at one time was a two-time world champion (laughs) and in the ufc and then right after that um this became the, the the major project for um you know almost a decade of of active research and writing yeah. well over a decade of casual you know if you if yeah. you count the initial mm-hmm. years of looking into it but but it wasn't a decision i was just there right. suddenly i was just this is what yeah. i'm doing and and it was hard because sure I had a, it, at some family. point you had and at some point you you had to take into account what it was going to do to you yeah um i think what it, what i think some of the some of what it did to me happened so slowly like that like that frog boiling in the water thing where they say mm-hmm. like if 
Or it's like uh, it's like you know Donnie Brasco didn't realize that yeah. he was getting in too deep mm-hmm. until yeah. he was in too it deep. It was kind of like that, man. Um, now my ex-wife at the time, bless her heart, as they say in the South, <laughs> um, uh, we, you know, we were we were we were fighting quite a bit at the time, and um, on occasion would use that against me. You know, there's a, there's something in the book that says she says you can't you can't keep thinking everybody is out mm. to get you or something, you know, or you can't keep, you know, whatever it was. And, and, um, but, but every, but to me, slowly my perspective did change into, yeah, no, mm. I can. Everybody is out to get me in a metaphorical sense, yeah. not right. to particularly get me, but to get some shit. Is and it? they were trying to get it from me and they're trying to get it from you and they're trying to get it because the world became super, super dark for sure. And I didn't, I didn't know that would happen to me. And I also, I know you have another question, but there are also images that you carry that you just don't want to carry, man. I looked at, I looked yeah. at um, FBI documents and state police documents um, related to um, the arrests of some suspects that had previously been charged with like 50 counts of criminal sexual conduct or with minors, things like that. And <clears throat> and you're reading narratives about, the, you know, they don't, they 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 uh, write what happened when you're when you're uh, arresting somebody for criminal sexual conduct it's what happened is in the narrative report and it's not you know we don't sit around as conscious beings or conscious sort of empaths trying to um read about detail accountings of the horrible things that happen to people um and it's 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 we go out of our way to avoid it yeah absolutely especially especially empathetic people uh, that you feel for the people but it affects you too much. You don't want that shit in your head. You got to keep living. Um, So it was tough, man, for sure. I I, I still, um, you know, there are times where you feel, I think all true crime writers I've talked to anyway, experienced this where you feel um, uh, particularly guilty for things that you didn't even do. You know, you just, you're in Mm. a, you're in a room with, well, I'm glad you used that word because I was afraid to ask this question, but do you have survivor's guilt? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, survivor's guilt in the sense that, like, um, well, not only do I have survivor's guilt from these crimes, uh, from surviving these crimes, they didn't happen to me, and so you feel. Um, but also, parallel to this was this the story of my family. Mm-hmm. Um, There's a lot of violence in my family when I was very young, and um, I have some survivor's guilt um, related to that, related to um, not getting the worst of it. Um, mm. in my family of, of uh, three kids you know there were i'm not gonna talk i don't feel like talking about that right now but but there was um but but i can say that um i didn't get the worst of it and i and i have some guilt over that and um you know there were other children in the family who got got it worse than i did and um you know and all kinds of shit man i had survived guilt my whole life i don't know why somebody somebody killed themselves at our high school i felt guilty about that um, somebody's family died of carbon monoxide poisoning. I felt guilty about that because I hated that kid. You know, you 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 have yeah. thoughts, and then especially as a writer, you you mull over those thoughts so much that you think, "Damn, am I am I even allowed to have these thoughts?" Like, I'm I'm a you know I'm a very safe, responsible parent. Um, my my kids um, have meant everything to me. They're grown now. They're grown. They don't need shit from me. But <laughs> but um. They literally don't even, they don't need anything, not even physical. They're both second degree black belts in Taekwondo. <laughs> They're both living their lives. They, you know, I bug them, bug the shit out of them just by texting them. Um, <laughs> but, but, um, but I say all that to say, uh, uh, I, I'm a very responsible parent, but I always feel guilty um, by association with um, the world. Like mm. um, there are sick people out there. And so when I am like at the playground, and I just want to sit down on a bench and read because it's a big park or whatever. I I feel guilty. I feel like yeah. uh, somebody's looking at me like I'm that creep. What's that guy doing so I got to get out of here. <laughs> like I just can't live my life without being conscious of um, these fucked up people, you know. And it's it's very difficult for me like that. And you could have gone. So you could have <clears throat> you could have addressed this in a number of ways growing up and as an adult. Uh, instead, you chose well. Not instead, but what you chose was to be a writer and to explore themes and to explore um, events that would speak to you. So why a writer? 
Did you show early talent? That did people? You know, I used to interview writers all the time, and I, the question I'd always ask is, "What was that moment yeah. when someone said, hey, nice job,' and you went, yeah. oh, hey, maybe I'm a writer.'" Yeah, that's interesting. I had a um, English teacher. I forget his name, but he also was the drama teacher. And I started winning the, um, oh, one thing earlier happened in fourth grade. We had this like race to look up words contest in one of my classes, like uh, combustible. And then everybody flipped through the dictionary <laughs> and then you'd raise your hand if you found the word before anybody else. I always found that damn word before everybody else. I don't know how that happened. Cause, positive feedback. Cause, yeah. And I started to get like word feedback. I was not a good student at all in anything. And, and then uh, in like ninth or 10th grade, this English teacher who was also the drama teacher had these um, story starters and you mm. would always call mine out and, and note that I, you know, Jason's was really good or something. You know, he called me Jason. That was my, my government. Uh-oh, that it's J- been revealed. That was my government name, man. <laughs> and, um, but, uh, um, but I think what really happened was, um, you know, I, I was surrounded by a lot of driven people. I grew up with not any personal money myself but i was surrounded by a lot of people that were driven in detroit to, to make something better themselves and um i was lucky in that sense that i was around those people and they um i i wanted to uh be a part of that world of like financial success or something and, and i wanted to um at the time i was 15 years old i wanted to own shopping malls that was my goal <laughs> and um because i thought there's big money in that and at the time now it's the yeah. opposite but but um then i my buddy uh, who's an attorney now, he was driving me in a car and he crashed the car. He got in a car wreck and I got, uh, I, I was unconscious for about, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes. And um, I think, and I of course had a concussion. I mean, I was knocked out cold for, and I was out for 15, 20 minutes. Ambulances came. I didn't wake up till I was in the ambulance. And I, I think something happened to me then. Um, I don't know exactly what, but it was very shortly after that, that I focused everything on writing and um, I became a rapper first. Uh, Jay Nice um, and Battle Rock Crew was my was my group at the time. Jay Nice, I had a little diamond shaved into the back of my head. <laughs> I could still rap a little bit. I remember the raps. They were they were <laughs> people listening to this are gonna be like, this guy's not the writer I thought he was. Um, uh, well, especially Jay Nice. Jay Nice. Jay Nice. Yeah. How old were you? Uh, at that time, I was just just about sixteen. Okay. I'm like the he Mac from dust to dawn. We Mac, do you all night? Got hard like a heart attack. That was that was the kind Good of thing mom, I yeah. that was okay. the kind of thing I wrote about someone who had no sexual experience at all, <laughs> constantly writing about sexual experiences he pretended to have. Well, you wouldn't be um, the first. But then, but then, right after that, I mean, I I got serious. Uh, it just suddenly around in 1919, I realized it was like. It wasn't so much a choice. It was just I didn't know how to do anything else. It was just the only thing I could do. I, I was terrible at school. I finished. I went on and got an MFA, but in the thing I could do. Mm-hmm. But in undergrad, I was just, you know, I was terrible at everything. I dropped classes all the time, got all kinds of zeros. And it was just all I did. So and there's a there was another person, a, a woman named Sarah, uh, who's um, Facebook friends now. But, but she was a writer and meant my relationship with her meant a lot to me as like um, a sort of catalyst for um, a, a world full of people that I could, that I suddenly realized were out there if I could find them that I could actually talk to. I didn't have a lot of people that understood the way my mm-hmm. brain worked and, you know. And what, uh, when you when you decided you're gonna be a writer, long before you decided you were gonna tackle this lifelong obsession, what were you writing? I was writing poems at first, little poems like, mimicking poets i had read and liked you know Mm -hmm. um small midwestern poems um short stories that were quiet with no ending (laughs) (laughs) i had a few of those yeah (laughs) (laughs) um you know i i mean we were well we were instructed to write that way by when you read raymond carver i was just gonna say ruined by ray yeah all of us everybody man hold decades of there has to just and, killed and by the by this guy there must be so many boys around our age who were ruined by ray carver it <laughs> yeah. took me the longest time where i really actually i'm kind of a maximalist <laughs> <laughs> yeah good point not a minimalist. right yeah. right that's what happened i finally found a voice that was like 
suddenly made sense to me. That was actually my voice, which was yeah. a lot more uh, lush and extravagant. Totally. Um, I was into so many things in pop culture and yeah. stuff. And it's like, that's a loud voice, pop culture voice yes. that, it, or the, the aesthetic yeah. is big. These guys that I was uh, mimicking were people who had no love in their lives and no art on their walls, mm. you know? And, yeah. and, I, and I live differently than that. You know? Yeah, and I'm still kind of fascinated with those guys. <laughs> oh, well, sure. I still sure. like them. <laughs> sure. I'm curious um, about, did you think there was a memoir in your future when you were starting writing? I mean... Yeah, they, and, and, and we call it true crime, but it's really, um, I mean, we talk about it colloquially as true crime, but it's a true crime memoir. It's yeah. about it's about as much about me as it is the case. And yeah. which, is a, which is a thing. That's a genre. Well, man, it wasn't. It was a pain <laughs> in the ass to get published. And, and, and I'll tell you, I had agents um, that yeah. I, I didn't have an agent, and they would say to me, I love this. I don't know how to sell it, though. I'm not the one for you. I know you're going to find somebody because it's brilliant or whatever they would say, you know, to get off the email chain right. but 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 they would say because i don't know if it's true crime or memoir and i don't know what a publisher where they're going to put it how you're going to get it published and where they're going to put it on the shelf mm. and and then the first blurb i got was from <laughs> james renner who says a powerful confident voice in the new the new <laughs> true crime <laughs> memoir genre which didn't apparently exist until yeah. a dozen of us were writing these things that's kind of like, cool awesome. actually um yeah, I wish they would have taken it a few years earlier. Not not just for my writing, but for the case as well. Like yeah. it took a few more years yeah. for for this case stuff to get out, and that was important. But uh, but the answer is, um, I did not at, at any point in in my writing attempts think that I would eventually write a, a memoir, and that that would be the first real yeah. book of mine that got published. I had a couple of poetry books published I've had, but um, the first, you know, major sort of thing, um, I, I I had always been writing novels mm -hmm. and um, and I'm working on a novel right now, but but I had um, always been writing novels and, and poetry, but I always thought my first book bigger than a poetry yeah. book would be would be fiction. And, and um, but there was a guy, uh, Bruce Ballinger, a guy in my uh, MFA program at Boise State, um, who he was uh, just a great big-hearted instructor who um, I took his nonfiction class because you had to take classes. You were in an MFA program, yeah. even though that wasn't really my focus. Um, but you had to take classes, and so I took his, and um, I was forced to write nonfiction for the first time. And man, it it felt so good because um, really uh, the only reason I was writing it at all was to to say what was what I had mm. inside of me somehow. And I wasn't being successful at it somehow in fiction. And I mean, I, I mean, I think the writing was good, but, yeah. but, but what happened with nonfiction was like, Oh, you mean I can just say this shit? Yeah. I don't have to like, yeah. I don't have to cloak, cloak it, it. <laughs> in someone, in someone else's clothing, you know? Yeah. Um, so it, it was, it was, it was mind boggling to me. It was cool. It was probably the best thing that ever happened to me was to, uh, take, take that dude's class and suddenly realize, be forced to like, right try to write something real for what, once. What were some of the first nonfiction things you were writing in that class? Um, I wrote a lot about my uh, marriage and my kids. Mm -hmm. Same same kind yeah. of thing. Um, I, I, but I wrote about it in a different kind of way. My kids were tiny and I'd write about the, 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 the goofy shit that goes on in houses when you're raising kids, but it, but but the underlying the underlying chaos and darkness, yeah. kind of like a Raymond Carver story or something. <laughs> yeah. But but I would write it um, a little bit goofy. I sometimes I would make stuff up and try to call it nonfiction. And I'd be like, no, I gotta, I gotta stop doing that. So it was like it's actually a hard. It was hard to it's break hard. the habit because especially in create what do they call creative nonfiction? Yes. Where you're, you're taking liberties with um, the language surrounding. Uh, even environmental, like I remember the flowers, and I think I remember how they smelled. <laughs> yeah. But you have to pick, yes. you have to pick words to say that. Yeah, yeah. and you're really just picking really some point. words sometimes. Yes, they smelled like this. I think they did, but in order to go back, in order to know, you'd have to go all the way back, right? And we talk about this in nonfiction writing all the time, yeah. like um, uh, the ethics and stuff around. Yeah too much description of things that you don't actually remember and that yes. it's difficult you have to keep yourself in check but hopefully i do um, and, and at what point to sort of yeah. step forward a little bit when you approach this project yeah 
When did you decide the best approach was a combination mm -hmm. of true crime and, and memoir, which didn't exist at that point? Yeah, that was accidental too. I kept trying to, I, well, what happened was I realized very early that I was not um, a, a skill, you're not yet a skilled investigative journalist, so to speak. Um, I was more of like a reporter who says some things he thinks he sees or something. Mm. I didn't have the academic background. I'm, I'm drawing a distinction uh, to say that like a real investigative journalist uh, might have a different kind of academic or intellectual background than just a, a journalist, a guy mm -hmm. who flops into the room and mm -hmm. types out the story. And, and, and I'm not, that's not, I think I'm that second guy more. I didn't know any part of which guy I would be mm -hmm. until I started the process. And I realized, man, I am not, I don't write these dense 600 page tomes of, of, uh, about a case. I, I, I thought that maybe that's what I could pull off. Mm -hmm. And I just kept writing about my association with the mm -hmm. case. Um, it's just what, what happened. I was just, I was just trying to write what I knew. And every yeah. time I write what I knew, something about my life got yeah. mingled, mingled with the case. And I tell you, I felt okay embracing that because this is what I think about uh, this case and all serious uh, uh, offenses, criminal offenses that, and I say this all the time and um, in various ways because it, 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 has, it keeps haunting me that serious offenses don't end with the resolution of so-called resolution of the case, the prosecution mm. of a suspect. Um, who maybe goes to prison or in some worst case scenarios, he gets the death penalty and dies or whatever. It doesn't matter to the, yeah, it feels a little better that somebody got caught for mm -hmm. the shit that went on. It's a little better than not having had that happen. But but those effects linger and yes. they change the way you interact with the world, not just for the immediate family members of the victims, but for the entire community and the people surrounding the community and then the children of that community. Yeah. and and. This is not a case that um, theoretically should have personally changed anything about me, um, but it it did. It changed everything about me, and I felt like that was the story I wanted to tell. That that regardless of what happens with this case, whether they officially stamp it closed mm -hmm. or not, uh, and we can talk about that if you want. But but regardless of what happens with this case, um, there are hundreds of thousands of people that are touched by this case in the city of Detroit, probably millions, as I said, at this point, if you talk about like yeah. trickling through generations and whatever. And um, this is a story for them as much as it is to try to get the case out there. I've had so many, uh, this book came out and then the TV show came out. Um, I had hundreds of Facebook messages from strangers saying, uh, hey, uh, I saw your TV show or I saw or I read your book and I don't know, I just wanted to say that Back in 78, there was this guy who molested me at camp or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and this, and I think maybe it's related to this ring of pedophiles you talk about in the book. But more than that, I just wanted to thank you for telling this story because it's given me some sort of relief of the pressure valves, uh, on the pressure valve. And, and I feel like I can finally talk about it, um, which is so interesting. I did not expect that at mm -hmm. all. It wasn't my motivation at all. Um, it had nothing. This was me telling my story, and I felt like okay with that because I thought I've got to be. There, there's no way I'm alone in this, and yeah. I I knew that everybody I'd ever talked to, and I'd say, hey, have you ever heard of the Oakland County child killer case? Yeah. They say, yeah, of course, man. Everybody yes. back in Detroit, right. yeah, I can tell you exactly what happened. Me and my boy went out with baseball bats, thinking we were gonna catch the motherfucker. <laughs> like, how old were you? We were 12, dude. We were out looking for the dude. Like, I mean, but everybody's got a story. Like, yeah, my mom wouldn't let me go to the store anymore. Or, yeah, like it was the beginning of what they call stranger danger yeah. back in yeah. the late 70s. And, well, and, and it, I, but I feel like in this case, the fact that it isn't solved, or I guess arguably isn't solved, yeah. well, would speak even more to that because they never caught the guy. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, the book details pretty pretty clearly in the tv show as well uh, tv show the books kill the kill jar and the tv show children of the snow um they both deal pretty clearly with the idea that there are multiple perpetrators mm -hmm. that were in um 
that were aware of what was going on, if not directly responsible for what was going on. And um, this was not what this what the cops laid out as a lone serial killer hunt. Um, the cops had had uh, laid that out, and, a pre- and the press had laid that out as a way, I think, of deflecting from the reality that there were multiple entrenched parties um, that knew a lot about this case, and this case should have been closed decades mm-hmm. ago and, and, and labeled solved. Um, and some of the people that know some, some of this uh, or knew some of this at the time are still alive. The main uh, perpetrators, I, w- I would say... Um, uh, some are dead and some are alive. And I think, yes, this case is officially um, uh, an, an op- labeled an open investigation. Um, but uh, uh, <laughs> there, there's enough here that if, if, if um, they had a couple of young black guys depended on 20 years ago, um, with that little of that information that they, or with just a little of the information that they already have, they could have put those guys away mm-hmm. for for life. But the fact that these were um, uh, that there are wealthy white ties to this case mm-hmm. um, has has been what's left caused it to be left open. And and um, I'm saying all of this because the question you posed is sort of if um, uh, it 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 in implies possibly that this is a f- uh, not actually solved but if you read the book i think there's a plausible mm. case to mm-hmm. say that it that it is it's just not officially yeah. solved so i say that but then i also but then yes yeah, so, um there is a lot of baggage related to uns- officially unsolved cases especially for the family members of the victims um there are people i talk to tom ascroft um uh kathy, kathy mm-hmm. broad her brother uh she has living brothers um, as well, not not just Tim King, who was her um, the fourth victim, is was her younger brother at the time. Um, her family members, anyway, um, family members of Chris, Christine Mihalik. Um, uh, you know, for for all of these people, and and of course the family members of other of the of the two other victims, um, Jill Robinson and um, Mark Stebbins. Um, for the family members of all those victims. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, could could use uh, some police acknowledgement, closure. Uh, some closure from 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 the case, and and more more specifically, police acknowledging that they um, either uh, accidentally fucked up or intentionally fucked up, and and um, there's arguments to be made for for both, but there's not arguments to be made that the that there were not shenanigans and tomfoolery involved in the investigation yeah. of this case. Like that is clear as day um, from all the documents. Let me have. ask you a couple of follow-ups then. Yeah. Uh, you had said earlier that one of the things that motivated you was the idea that you could undo a wrong or, or mm-hmm. help solve, you know, help, help right a wrong yeah. or help prevent something from happening in the future. Now that it's done and you've uncovered all this stuff, do you feel like it's mission accomplished? I feel like it's mostly mission, mostly mission accomplished. I feel like um, there's always like more work. You know, I, I, there's a part of me. I, I, I think it's part of partially having grown up in Detroit. Um, you know, D- Detroit uh, got a bad rap from the man, so to speak. Um, uh, decades of mayors and political figures um, have been have been found to be uh, corrupt. Uh, you know, uh, the the city was basically destroyed by by graft and grift, and um, mm-hmm. you know, at the political level, and and you know, when you grow up seeing that shit in the news, you just you, you're pissed off all the time. You're like, man, I just like, can I just like get my job? Like, it's okay if if I'm working as hard as I can, and I'm making minimum wage. You know, if I'm one of these guys that still lives in Detroit, making minimum wage at a job that he's lucky enough to find. Um, God willing, he can find a fucking job at this point. And I'm making minimum wage and I'm busting my ass and doing all the things I'm supposed to do. And then I got to look in the goddamn paper once a month and see homeboy in the fucking mayoral office walked away with a million dollars of graft and shit or whatever. You're like, God damn. Like you just get so upset constantly Mm -hmm. because you're busting your ass doing all the things that your church and your political figures and your family told you you're supposed to do to be a good person. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, here's all these people don't give a shit about any of that and they're getting one over on you 
that that becomes a part of like your makeup you just feel like you like i cannot let this happen mm -hmm. as much as you can as much as every part of you that isn't compromised too much kicks in and fights against that you don't want to compromise your family you're not going to yeah. you're not going to yell at your boss every three days because you think the man is taking advantage of you but it just becomes a part of your psyche and you want to you want to take action when you can okay so like there's a great there's a guy who's a great example of that charlie leduff he's a a reporter in Detroit. I love that guy. He, he wrote a book, Detroit and American Autopsy. He wrote mm -hmm. um, book That's called, why I've heard of yeah. him. He wrote, also wrote a book called Shit Show with the asterisk um, <laughs> in in the first word. Um, great books uh, about this very thing. This is why Trump became president. Basically, he postulates in the second book, which is which is that um, the the little man he was sick of getting taken one taking one taking one for the team and trump felt like the answer to that now we know now that that's not true but it was basically lower middle class people voted this this homeboy into office and and people who the very people who he takes the most advantage of but but arguably you know you could of course trump supporters will come back and say no you're wrong dude. but but the point is i i'm of that ilk uh and i wrote the book and mission accomplished mostly but um what would be really mission accomplished is if just this is all and this is at this point all the family members of the victims really want to is have one cop step mm. step away from the from the pack and say look publicly mm -hmm. on on an official broadcast and say look we got it wrong and here's what i know and here's what the public should know and i'm losing my job over this but I wanted to do this because I feel bad and I'm sorry. And mm -hmm. um, that's like if, if that's what you're waiting for. Yeah, and that would that would be like mission accomplished, you know, to have one cop, after, yeah. maybe even after retirement, say, look, we we screwed up and um, we're really sorry. And even if the at the very least, hey, it's not a conspiracy. They were just idiots running this investigation. <laughs> that would be nice to hear. Yeah, yeah. And anything, but but all they've done is is turn their backs on on real reporting about this case, which only uh, uh, validates the sort of conspiratorial error mm -hmm. that surrounds it. Um, looking at this, coming into this, I thought, well, shoot, you know, if someone's going to take on this topic, I can't imagine what that would do to them. And I think we mm -hmm. alluded to that in a few earlier questions, like the weight of dealing with this nastiness yeah. in writing. But hearing you talk about it more, knowing what it had meant to you for a long time, although you haven't gotten that cop yet, do you personally feel any sense of peace having tackled this finally? Yeah. Yes. Um, but it did change or it, it did bring out, I do feel, I do feel, I know what you're talking about. And yes, I do feel some sense of peace. I do feel proud of the fact that I spent a decade digging in. Mm -hmm. um, I feel happy that the book got published because it, it makes me feel like um, that I'm not the person that I more often tend to feel like, um, which is, um, you know, just <laughs> just yesterday I was walking. I mean, I, how do I say this? Um, I have a I have a strong affinity for the disenfranchised. Mm -hmm because I feel that way. Like, you know, I was reflecting on how very few of my friends, um, the people I call friends when I come, when it comes down to it, um, really understand me. Like, I feel like people don't reach out in the moments that they should or would if they really got you, you know? And um, so like, Last night I was walking around reflecting on this and I realized I was like, man, I, you know, I had my hood up and my earbuds in. And I was listening to like Joyner Lucas or something. And um, and uh, there's something in me that says, oh, no, you got to be careful of like people seeing you or whatever. Because I want to just like sometimes lay down and take a nap on the on the concrete. You know, mm. like I don't mean that metaphorically. I mean, literally, I'm fucking tired. And it just I seems just, really attractive. Just, I just want to lay down right here and take a nap, man. You but know? what would people think? What would they think? How would my, you know, my family, the family members of my kids' friends or yeah. the people I've been trying to put up a show for for 20 years or whatever, like, but like the reality is like even my friends, the people I call friends, like, yeah, I like them and they're my friends. They are. And I care about them a lot. 
But I feel like, what would they say? You know, like, do they realize? They don't know this shit goes on with mm -hmm. me, you know? And it's like, it's too much to tackle, like, all at once. Like, I saw you sleeping on the ground, man. <laughs> what? But that, the thing is, what I'm getting at is that I feel happy that the book is out. But I don't, I, part of me feels more like that than I used to even because mm. the book almost gave me permission mm. to be more of myself because there's less to prove. Like, it's like, okay, I got this book. Now leave me alone. You know, mm. I don't mean my oh, friends. I, I don't mean my friends, but it's like, look, this is who I really am. Yeah. I at least can fall back on that. It's like, it's kind of like if you were taking a nap on the ground and a cop said, what are you doing here? And you say, hey, I'm a PhD, man. You're yeah. Like, oh, okay, okay. You know, I think you just touched on a universal writer thing. <laughs> yes. We're like, oh, yes, I am in the gutter, and this is my book that my head is lying on, so I'm okay. Check it out. Exactly. This will always be here, even after <laughs> I'm gone. This book that I wrote yeah. will be yes. here. You hope, anyway. How did your kids react to the book? Did they? Well, my, they haven't talked to me about it. Interesting. I mean, I don't know. I don't think my son has read it, and mm -hmm. uh, my daughter has read it but hasn't talked to me about it <laughs> is that something you thought about beforehand only the part not beforehand only when it was about to get published i had to deal with mm. certain things like there were things i took out i was um, wondering about that once yeah. it once it once it was accepted for publication i said hey i think i gotta take out this passage or the legal team at simon and schuster said hey i think you gotta take out this passage <laughs> they said they said that three or four to three or four things you know they have one the, the lawyer for simon and schuster didn't there's like a whole damn chapter in there she's like you gotta get rid of this chapter it's like what are you fucking crazy like what it's like this whole chapter is the like but in the end we compromised and i took out some of the names that mm. that i had mm. because because these are li living people yes. and i think they were right in some way to do that um but but i did think about personal stuff i took out some stuff related to my original family family growing up with and i took out mm -hmm. some stuff related to my current family but but little little things but but hard things to for people like your family yeah. to hear and um it I changes mean, the book a little bit but not not entirely not, not in large ways i feel like that's one of the biggest questions for anyone who writes nonfiction oh, about yeah. personal experiences you know i i, I on a much lighter level there's a woman named beth lizick who wrote um memoirs in san francisco and i mm -hmm. read one and it's a little racy yeah and i said like <laughs> there's one scene in particular where she talks about going to her mother's after a one night stand and it's clear she realizes later that people could tell yeah <laughs> and i said or you know do you want your mom reading that yeah and all she said yeah i left a lot out but yeah. i always wondered like i would not want would you want a family right. member reading it, your yeah. kids especially, yeah. and going, oh. Or anytime there are other people involved. I mean, right. that's one thing that like I was having anxiety on your behalf reading this book because you're writing about difficult material just in terms of the crime and, and the families of these victims, and then you're writing about your own family and then what's going on in your life at the point that you're working on this project. Yeah. And I was wondering, what was there one thing in particular that was the hardest to get right? Well, I think the, I think the thing that was the hardest to get right is something that I maybe failed at slightly. Still, mm -hmm. um, I, I wanted to show um, there was stuff with my marriage that I I was talking about that mm -hmm. I you know I was no angel, um, and yet at the time the, the scenes I was setting I was super pissed off, and um, some some you know people have commented like. What's what's this guy so pissed about? He's no angel, mm. you know. But I I tried to get I tried yeah. to get that clear yeah. that that that's the human that's the human existence yes. that's the human truth that you can still be super angry and not be perfect and yeah. <laughs> and um and I wanted to get that clear and most people got that but yeah. there's a percentage of people who didn't and I would have liked to have had another stab at that because um, just for clarity's sake um, I, I also think that. Um, well, there is one thing that I think I that was hard for me to write. I wrote it more evocatively at first, and then I pared it back, and I felt like that was helpful. Mm -hmm. um, which is there's a scene where a guy I reflect on this guy who had sort of tried to groom me to yeah. molest me, basically, even though I was a teenager at the time. He had, I, you know, we use molest, the the word molest, you know, and we think young children I, I was i was in my teens early mm -hmm. teens at the time but mm -hmm. 
but there was there was a guy in his in midlife who had been grooming me in this mm-hmm. taking me to this place called the Schwitz, uh taking me there and I, um and what's interesting is i i did not expect i certainly didn't expect what i'm about to tell you but i had set that scene i decided to tell that scene with like in sort of an impressionistic way like without so much telling what what happens in that bathhouse but like telling what it, the bathhouse felt like and what mm-hmm. things looked like and stuff and um three different people uh so far have read the book and contacted me on facebook and said and i don't name the guy mm-hmm. and said i know who you're talking about oh, wow um because he did the same he was doing the same shit to me and um they said wow. i know who you're talking about because of the way you described him like um i didn't say his name no. i just i just described his look and three different people and they were all right i said you know they said wow. i know who you're talking about you're talking about this guy and they were all right and um is he still alive he is i found him on facebook like oh, wow. six months ago he's he's in his 80s oh. and and i have left it alone i didn't um I didn't make any, uh, you know, I haven't made any effort to, and some people will say you should because he may have molested 25 people Mm. or something, but, um, I'm, it's just not, it's just not where I'm at and I don't know, but, um, but that, that scene I apparently did, did right, even though it was a tough scene for me to like reflect on or something. It was definitely that chapter. There's a lot that sticks with me in this book, but that one has continued to haunt me, Mm -hmm. I have to say. What was it like to then kind of turn this into a television show how did that even come about um it was it was uh optioned by a production company i had actually i don't know exactly how it came about this particular one i think it was like simon schuster was about to publish the book soon and they put out like a newsletter or something like industry newsletter like here's what's Mm. up next on our docket or something and the, I think that's how this production company got a hold of me. Um, they're the people who make uh, other shows that are pretty popular. Like uh, they, they make tons of shows, but they they make they make, uh, make Marcella, I think it's called. And oh they, yeah. Um, but they also make um, Property Brothers and American oh, Pickers. <laughs> and love me some Property Brothers. Yeah, and and stuff like that. But I had actually that was like the ninth production company that had um, uh, courted me, or so so to speak, or whatever. Like I, I had I had been trying to get this thing published for so long that just in the course of my work in the film world, the, l- the little bit that I've done, um, I had run into production companies and, and they had, you know, asked me along the way, like to send me stuff, send them mm-hmm. stuff or whatever, as I got closer or whatever. And I had, this was, there were nine different people that, that wanted to um, we're not do it, but I eventually signed, signed it over to this um, mm-hmm. company, Cineflix. And because they, they seemed like the surest bet. There were others that might have been more rewarding or less rewarding. I don't know, but but Cineflix seemed like the surest bet because they had the biggest production did company. They, and did they all give you the opportunity to be on camera? Uh, they all they all asked me to be. And um, did you want to be? Yeah, I thought I thought yes because I wanted to be able to tell the story that I knew should be told, mm-hmm. and I wanted to help direct that that narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I knew the best shot to do that would be to be on camera, to be a part of the yeah. production. Um, now, Cineflix did a great job. Children of the Snow, I think, is a great is a great show. They did a great job. Um, but boy, uh, if they would just if, if they would just put out the forty hours of outtakes um, <laughs> as footage, because I said all kinds of shit that did <laughs> that did not get on camera, that did not get into the final cut. This is a soft, soft version of what I really think. Um, because there were forty-five minute diatribes that did, that could not <laughs> uh, clearly could not be, be aired. Couldn't be aired. But. Well, do you see it though as a tool for selling the book too? Yeah, uh, but I gotta say, like I, 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 it's it's hard for me. I, I actually wrote something about this call. It's called "Selling Out the Dead." It's on media. I have a Medium uh, page, mm-hmm. and "Selling Out the yeah. Dead" talks about promoting your quote true crime yeah. story. I mean, yeah, I knew it would be a vehicle for selling the book. Book sales spike. When the when the show first came out in February, now it's been released on mm-hmm. Hulu. Book sales are probably spiking as well, meaning going up. Um, yes. But but um, but um, it's 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 yeah, sure that's great. But it's also important to me because the story is important to me, you know. And it's like, um, 
I would be remiss to like sit here and say like, yeah, I'm stoked. The book is hot. Um, <laughs> but like, cause it's really about these murdered kids and you know, it's, it's a, it's a important question cause you want to be practical about, you know, getting your stuff out there and whatever. But, but more to the point is that I'm, um, I'm excited that the TV show has brought more exposure mm-hmm. to the case, which then brings more exposure to my book, which brings more exposure to the case, which sets mm-hmm. the groundwork for other shows and other books. And I know there are, mm-hmm. there are mm-hmm. other people now writing writing about the case. There's another show, you know, in the works. Like there's multiple podcasts that are based on the case. And, yeah. you know, all this started, I really, uh, I could see it happening as I was writing because about two years before I, so three years before the book came out, I put out like 20,000 words from the book on mm-hmm. on Medium. Mm-hmm. And that 20,000 words got about 15 or 20,000 reads. Um, and shortly after that, I started to see small bits of content on the internet mm. um, based on the case, people doing podcasts or whatever. And, and some of those people stealing my shit and just rewording it. But I didn't uh, care because that's not what it was about for me. It was about getting exposure to the case. But boy, so, it must have been easy to sell the book if you throw something on Medium and 20,000 people read it. <laughs> It was it was easier. Yeah, yeah, it must have made it a lot easier. Um, and we're starting to run out of time, but I wanted to ask you a couple questions, follow ups to what happens now. So you said you're working on a mystery novel yeah. now. Are you? So do you think this is your only foray? It's a one shot deal into memoir and true crime. I don't think it's it's. I think there's going to be more of that okay. for sure. Um, I think the the true crime aspect is. Um, I think loosely defined. I, I mean, I would say I would say more. Okay, like I would say less true crime and more investigative type of writing. Mm-hmm. Right now, I'm, I'm thinking about. Um, I'm more obsessed with investigating. Um, what is it called, man? High crimes and misdemeanors, or something. Mm-hmm. What, is it, what do you call that? What is that? Is that like? <laughs> I forget what are I get. You talking I, political I, stuff? Yeah, yeah. Oh. I'm, I'm more involved in 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 corruption and collusion on the high scales. Mm. Yeah. Like, I mean, that uh, th- that stuff is interesting to me. I'm interested in like financial stuff. Um, really? I'm thinking about writing about that stuff, but mm. I don't think that is, um, uh, you know, that in some ways that's a lot rougher in some ways because you're talking about getting one over on millions of people sometimes. Well, you really got to put your investigative journalist hat on yeah. for that stuff. Yeah, I'm lear- when, I've learned a lot. Especially so, if you don't have the personal hook. Yeah, well, I've learned a lot. Well, I, there are personal hooks and, okay. I've, and I've learned a lot in, in, in from the time I started the book to the time I and, and it's in fact there were six years I did as a uh, fraud investigator um, for a large company as licensed investigator in five states around Idaho that didn't happen till after I'd done most of my research I wish I had yeah. had that investigative training before I did my research but now <laughs> I've now I, uh, I, I've got it it would have taken me quicker but now I am actually uh, working as a private investigator and stuff so there's a lot that there's a lot that um I've learned over the years, but also I'm, um, I'm most immediately I'm wor- I've been working on a mystery novel, a crime novel. So, um, so and when that's you have, what's up next. When you have some, some success writing a nonfiction book that is a very specific type of nonfiction book, is it easier or harder than to turn around and tell your agent and tell publishers, I'm going to write a novel now? Well, it would have been harder if I had said, I'm going to write a... Um, a novel about uh, two women who go on vacation and, <laughs> and fall in love with each other, um, but I but I but I'm writing an, uh, a crime novel, you know, and so it's it was an easy um, leap, an easier leap, yeah leap for them to understand. Um, in, in fact, I got several offers to write true crime though um, stories um, from this agency uh, right after you know recently, like six months ago or something. But I said no because. Um, like for instance, one of them was they wanted me to write about the cartel, and I thought, man, I'm not that brave. <laughs> so there's some stuff I don't, I just, I don't want to go that dark anymore. The way I did, mm-hmm. right. that's why the financial stuff. That's why that's interesting to me. It's important to me. It's that like stick it to the man thing. Mm-hmm. But, but actually, I think it's relevant and timely. Like people are starting to understand that billionaires don't become billionaires without uh, uh, many of them. Uh, uh, pulling some shenanigans that screw over the masses. Like it's, it's just not easy to become a billionaire. Um, you have some exceptions, maybe Mark Cuban's one of them. I don't really know, but, <laughs> but probably not. Um, you know, they're, they're, you know, you, you look at like 
guys that run the lending industry or things like that and you're like uh they, they're destroying our economy in, in certain ways <laughs> we could talk about that but like that's the stuff that's interesting to me i'm more like political minded now for some reason maybe it'll go mm. away but i'm also interested in like the criminal justice system fucking over african americans and hispanics and any people of color and how terrible it is people doing 20 years for a bag of weed because it was their third offense or whatever that sort of stuff is interesting to me um and i think that's an easy sell to to agents Mm -hmm. did they understand it because i spent all this time digging into something yeah because you do have some capital right now it's a dig thing can you dig into a, a, a topic and uncover yes you know, so. What is it like now, though, to be working on a mystery novel after this very, very intense personal crime book? I love it. It's like it's also very personal what I'm mm-hmm. writing about, but fictional, you know, fictional yes, stuff. Like Jimmy Chinden is my my character. He grew <laughs> up on in a motel over here on Chinden, <laughs> Chinden Avenue, and um, and, but he experiences everything I experienced. You know, mm-hmm. so like it's it's in some version of it anyway. It's just fictionalized form but Mm -hmm. you know if i'm hurting jimmy's hurting Mm -hmm. you know if i'm feeling disenfranchised jimmy feels disenfranchised Mm -hmm. you know it's like it just kind of happens to him instead of me we are out of time we are uh jay rubin appleman has been our guest um the tv show children of the snow is available on hulu yeah, it's on Hulu. Um, Streaming on. You said something else too. Well, it's it's made by it's made by the uh, for the Investigation Discovery Channel. So you can always okay, you can ID always channel. find it on investigate on the ID channel. Kill Jar, of course, is available everywhere. Uh, you have a website, jrubenappleman.com. J R E U B E N A P P E L M A N. You got to spell that shit right, or A-P-P- nobody knows yeah, how to find it. I would have spelled it. apple like apple. Right. I got my whole life. I say to them, it's not like apple. It's E L. It's a pal. They can go it's to like... the co-op. They're like, I can't find you. It's E L. <laughs> go to the gym because you don't have your car. You're like, you got to look me up. I can't find you. It's E L. It's like, like every my whole life, man. <laughs> uh, as for us, uh, a few thanks to give out before we close. Uh, thanks to Treefort, of course, for their support. Thanks to uh, the Eavesdrop Podcast Network. That is ease-drop.com. Allison, can you help me with some um, social media yes. for Storyfort itself and Treefort? Yes, yeah, so you can find um, Storyfort at Storyfort Fest on all social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, and then treefortmusicfest.com for all information about Treefort and Storyfort. Hey, we'll see you at the fest. But tomorrow never came.